What is grace? Grace is community. Grace is passion. Grace is for everyone. Last week we had the district superintendent come and share with us an encouragement on Mother's Day. She said we are to be salt and light for the world, and in some ways we are already doing that. There is more for us, though, and responding to God's call is what helps us get there. That's why today we are going to continue our exploration of God's call, and we're doing it through the life of the Apostle Paul. You may remember how before Easter we were looking at the life of the disciple Peter. Well, now on the other side of Easter, we are spending some time with that other great disciple, Paul. Paul was originally a Pharisee named Saul, persecuting Christians until he was knocked off his horse and blinded. A Christian named Ananias bravely approached Saul, trusting that God had already done a work in his life. So instead of imprisonment and death, like he expected, his talk with Saul led to a miracle and the conversion of Saul. Then for eight or ten years, the story of Saul goes quiet. He is learning and growing with the Christian community. He is figuring out what it really means to be a Christian. Saul, uh, Saul is going to read our scripture for today. It comes from Acts chapter 11, where Saul is finally back on the scene. And as we hear our scripture, I want you to be listening for the missions work that is being done. What does a biblical view of missions look like? This is Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen tribal, as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, and they spoke the word to no one except Jews. But among them were some men of Cyprus and Syria, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also proclaiming the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number became believers and turned to the Lord. News of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barabbas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he rejoiced, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast devotion. For he was a good man, full of Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for an entire year they met with the church and taught a great many people and it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. At that time, prophets came, from, came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine over all the world. 
and this took place during the reign of Claudius. The disciples determined that according to their ability, each would send relief to the believers living in Judea. This they did, sending it to the elders by Barabbas and Saul. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks to be God. Amen. Amen. Let's join together in prayer. Lord, may we be an inclusive community, passionately following Jesus Christ. May we be mission-minded as the ancient disciples were, doing your work for the good of the world. In Christ we pray. Amen. Today is Change the World Sunday, which some churches around the United States celebrate. It is a time to reflect on and celebrate the mission's work of the church. It began years ago by a large United Methodist Church that wanted to celebrate and highlight the work that they were doing and encourage others to do the same. So today we look at both the work we are doing and reflect on what it means to do missions. Now, doing missions doesn't mean the same thing everywhere you go. I remember when I was a young person, I had not grown up in the United Methodist Church, and in my home church, when we did missions, it meant one thing and one thing only. Missions was done by missionaries, and it was a missionary's job to travel around the world and to save people's souls. They would use whatever tools were available to them to convince and change people's minds about Jesus. There was one particular event from my teen years that will always stick with me. My brother, after graduating from high school, had gone to a Bible college. When he came back on break, he asked me if I wanted to go to the mall, and I said, okay. I said, yes, and then he told me we were going to the mall to save people. Now, that might strike some of you in an awkward way. Who at the mall needs to be saved? But we weren't saving people from some kind of physical danger. We were saving them from Uh, uh, spiritual danger, right? We're trying to save souls from an eternity in hell. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but I felt like my brother had tricked me by asking if I wanted to go to the mall first and only later telling me that we were going to save souls, but that's a different story. Uh, And I didn't know whether approaching folks in the mall would be all that helpful in what he said we were going to do. Who was going to listen to a 16-year-old tell them about their, their destination in eternity? How could I possibly redirect a person's life toward God at the mall? And mostly what I imagined would happen was what in fact happened. We asked people if they wanted to talk, and everybody said no. They didn't want to talk to this stranger in the mall. Turns out they were all at the mall for a reason. They were all there to do some shopping, so that's what they continued to do. It was not a great environment to be a missionary. But as I got older, I found out some people meant something very different when they said missions. They weren't talking about trying to save a person's soul by changing their minds about God. They were talking about helping people with their physical needs. In college, I was invited to help feed the poor in the city. I made sandwiches and handed them out to people living on the streets. I worked with groups just like Family Promise that we're supporting today with a meal. Uh, that They gave shelter to people that were homeless. Uh, the church would set up beds and have meals for those folks. It felt good to feed people that were hungry and put a roof over the heads of people that otherwise had nowhere to go. 
It was totally different from what I thought of as missions as a child. We gave people what they needed physically, and we basically ignored their spiritual lives. There was no need to have that awkward conversation about God because it was obvious, wasn't it? We did these things because we were Christians, and Christians help others, period. It wasn't for a few more years before I experienced another way of understanding what it means to do missions. It started on a trip when I was an adult leader with a youth group. We had traveled out to Pennsylvania and were there to help rebuild homes, help people with uh, the public spaces and any kinds of needs that they might have. We wanted to be a blessing to that community. And it was the same thing happening over and over. People would ask us what we were doing, why we were there, and we would tell them with the same answer to their question, we are a church group and we're here to help. And when they found out that we had actually paid money to come out there and work, their jaws would drop. What? You paid money to help people? It just didn't make any sense to them. They expected the exact opposite of that, that we would get paid for our work with them. Paying to help others seemed impossible to them. It went against everything they knew about how the world worked. When we were with these folks, we would learn their stories and hear of the hardships that they experienced. We would share about God's transformational love, a kind of love that would lead people like us to give our lives away for the benefit of others. And they were touched by this. Some would even come and join us for worship in the evenings with our group so they could hear more about God's good news for the world. It was a very ancient definition of missions, a work that ministered to both the body and to the soul. In Acts 11, we see this with the Apostle Paul. He's doing missions like this. At, at that time, the disciples of Jesus were mostly just telling others, uh, other Jews about Jesus, trying to convert this small percent of people to follow Jesus. Some, though, started talking to the Hellenists or the non-Jewish Greeks living in what today we would call the country of Turkey. A bunch of them are convinced of the need to follow Jesus, and when the Christian leaders in Jerusalem hear about this new group of believers, they send one of their best men, Barnabas, to go and help. And when they get there, he is floored. This isn't some group of misfits perverting Christianity or fakers pretending so that they can gain influence in their community. This is the real deal. The, the presence of the Holy Spirit is obvious and palpable in this community. So Barnabas goes and gets Paul, who is still called Saul at this point, so he can grow with this beautiful, amazing Christian community. The scriptures say he stayed there for a year, and then just a couple of chapters later in Acts 13, we hear about Saul's first missionary journey traveling to the island of Cyprus, converting the governor there, and then to cities across Turkey. Hundreds are converted and change their lives as they decide to follow Jesus. This is much like what I described in my childhood, missions for missionaries. And when we think of the Apostle Paul, we probably think about a person who is so bold in telling everyone he meets about Jesus. 
I always pictured him as a Bible version of a superhero, just replace his cape with a robe, and there you go, right? But if we read the scriptures carefully, we can see there are some places where Paul does not preach. We don't always know why he doesn't, but we know sometimes he doesn't. We get a hint of it in these chapters in Acts. It said that Paul got sick. Maybe he had malaria, but most people think he was often dealing with glaucoma, an eye disease, and when he was blind or nearly blind, they would take a different route, and he didn't preach to the people in those other places. Paul let his physical needs get in the way of when and where he would preach the good news. That's unexpected for many of us. We think of him as a a superhero that is always preaching no matter where he goes, and yet the physical needs at times take precedence. Let me read for you again uh, the last portion of Scripture from Acts 11. It helps us see a bigger point to missions, and it starts at verse 27. Agabus stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine all over the world, and this took place during the reign of Claudius. The disciples determined that according to their ability, each would send relief to the believers living in Judea. This they did, sending it to the elders by uh, Barnabas and Saul. Right away, the mission work of Barnabas and Saul involves collecting food to stave off hunger. Christian missions from the beginning has always been about both the body and the spirit. You can't have one without the other. Through much of church history, this was understood as true, but about a hundred years ago, there was this big split between churches. What was called the fundamentalist position said, only saving souls mattered. That's it. And the social gospel liberal, liberals, on the other hand, said saving the body was real salvation. And you can still see that divide in churches today. Some say one thing, others another. But here at Grace, as we talk about missions, I want us to be thinking about both of these things together. The mission is always to minister to the whole person, both body and soul. Some of the smartest missions-minded people I know would say, People can't hear what you are saying when they are starving. And they're right. It's no good preaching to someone who's so hungry, all they can think about is where their next meal is coming from. It's also true that people don't know why you are doing what you are doing if you don't tell them the reason why you're doing it. Missions always involves proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ by using our words to tell people about Jesus and by doing good works to help those in need. We celebrate today the good works we do when we make a meal to feed the homeless through family promise. What an incredible blessing that is. We are feeding the hungry like the church in Acts 11 did. And we celebrate the ways we can help young people through Camp YDP and through our support of the nursery school so they can all learn and grow to be strong, healthy people. We even have an opportunity to sign a petition to help indigenous women 
we are always on the lookout for new ways we can help those who have real and deep needs. As our bishop says, when people hurt, Methodists help. We made hygiene kits to help those on the streets. We made flood buckets and collected funds for those who are impacted by hurricanes. I remember a few years ago when there was a massive earthquake in Haiti, the United Methodist Committee on Relief started collecting funds and rebuilding homes on that island that would be earthquake-proof. Never again would these people's homes crumble underneath them because of an earthquake. That is what Methodists do. But where sometimes we struggle a little more as Methodists is to tell people why we do these good things. And not every situation is the right one to try and tell someone about Jesus. I learned that lesson at the mall. And street corner barkers might draw plenty of attention to themselves proclaiming the end of the world, but I highly doubt that they are making converts and followers of Jesus Christ in doing that. You need a relationship with people. So what we do instead is invite others to join in with us doing good for this world. Instead, we build sustained relationships with those in need and tell them the good news of God's love. Jesus compels us to help, and we will never stop doing what is right to help those in need because that's what love means. We do it in word and in deed. I think of my parents after all of us children had moved to different parts of the country, they still lived in Rochester, and they met this young woman. She was single and was raising two young children. And my parents realized how tough this was on her. They invited her and her children to their home, and they hit it off. Over time, it was like they had adopted these children as their own grandkids. They babysat, they took them to the movies and bought them Christmas presents. They had no obligation to help. But they knew that to be a Christian means we are all missionaries. We are always looking for ways to share God's love. It's the, the help we offer, but it's also the relationships we develop so we can say, I do this because God loves me and God loves you too. When I hear the word missions, I can't help but think of the missions that were set up around the world hundreds of years ago. One in particular are the Jesuit missions here in North and South America. Though there is a very conflicted history with these missions, some being set up to force indigenous people to convert. Others did incredible work. The stated goal of the Jesuit missions is to find God in all things and they dedicate themselves to the good of all humanity. One of the ways they did this centuries ago, and still today, is by getting to know the communities in which they are working. They took on the hardships of that community. They learned the language and customs of those people, and through this common experience, they would walk with people, helping them to see God in all the things that they were experiencing. One of the most compelling stories of these Jesuit missions comes from the true story turned movie called the mission now these jesuits set up their mission outpost in paraguay and do uh, do what they know is right they learn about the people they learn their language and their customs this was not easy some of the early on missionaries there were killed by these indigenous people 
It took huge sacrifices and dedication over long periods of time to get to a place where the natives trusted them. The picture is complicated in the movie and the real-life story by one character, Rodrigo Mendoza, who initially starts off as a soldier trying to enslave these native people. Eventually, in a fit of rage, he duels and kills his own brother, and he's put in jail and is overcome with grief at his actions. He believes there is no salvation for him on this earth. Father Gabriel from the Jesuit mission comes and meets with Mendoza, who is suicidal in his grief. Gabriel offers food to him and says plainly that he has killed his brother even though he loved him. Mendoza is ready to attack Father Gabriel over this because he believes there's no future for him. There is no penance big enough or punishment bad enough to make up for his sin. Father Gabriel, though, convinces him that the courageous path is to choose life. He convinces Mendoza to join his mission despite his past of enslaving the very people the mission works to help. And in one of the most moving scenes in all of cinema, Rodrigo Mendoza journeys with the priests back to their mission at the top of an enormous waterfall, but Mendoza has to carry his past with him. His penance is to climb the waterfall with all of his weapons and armor roped up in a pack. And as he climbs the falls, he nearly dies from the gear pulling him back. His life is in the balance. He's left far behind by the others, and finally, after a near impossible climb, he arrives at the mission. The priests and the natives are waiting for him, and when they finally spot him, one native man runs up to him holding a knife. Mendoza is the man that had attacked and enslaved these people. This native man has every right to kill him for the injustices he has brought on these people. And as he holds the knife to Mendoza's throat, everyone looks on wondering what he will do. Will he take an eye for an eye? and kill Mendoza for his sins? The man shouts out in his native tongue to the others gathered, and he cuts the rope wrapped around Mendoza. He rolls the huge burden of weapons and armor away from Mendoza and shoves it off the cliff down to the bottom of the waterfall. For a moment, Mendoza is in shock. He's not dead. Instead, he is freed from his burden by the very people he had worked to enslave just a short time ago. And tears flood down his face. He weeps as he realizes that he is forgiven and that things have been made right. The mission has somehow saved both his body and his soul. That, friends, is always our goal when it comes to missions work. We are not doing good work trying to save our own souls or trying to make things right for ourselves. Missions work is always other-centered, trying to free others from enslavement. Whether someone is trapped by food insecurity, homelessness, or the sins of their past, We work to bring freedom and salvation in every way, for the body, for the mind, for the spirit, and for the soul. 
May the work we do as individuals, as Grace United Methodist Church, and as Christians at work around the world always reflect a mission mindset that saves the whole person. May we be like the Apostle Paul, committed to Christ and seeking the best for others, no matter their past and no matter their situation. Amen? Amen. For everything happening at Grace, check out our website at gumc.org.